really the big purpose of the Lake Street Journal is to give people nuggets to ponder, to think on, to maybe apply to their life. But I always try to have something that will just leave you thinking. Welcome to episode two of the Idea Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. So I recently finished this book that was published in 1941. It was written by a German psychoanalyst named Eric Fromm, and the book is titled Escape from Freedom. Um, It was an excellent book, and there was a specific quote in that book that has had me thinking a lot lately. The quote goes, quote, whether or not we're aware of it, there is nothing of which we are more ashamed of than not being ourselves. And there is nothing that gives us greater pride and happiness than to think, to feel, and to say what is ours, end quote. So one of the things that I've hoped to do with this podcast is to more deliberately position myself around people who are doing just that, which is expressing themselves in some original way. And among other things, Joseph Wells, my guest for this week, is a creator, a writer, and is also the author of a weekly newsletter called The Lake Street Journal, where he curates and shares the best of what he's been exposed to recently, whether that be podcasts, books, or articles. Joe also has an excellent personal website of his own, josephcwells.com, where he tracks the progress of his own personal goals and he publishes essays on topics of all kinds. Having uh, been subscribed to Joe's Lake Street Journal newsletter for some time now and finding a lot of inspiration from it, it was a ton of fun to speak to Joe and learn more about his background and to also discuss his ambitions with his own content creation. Uh, So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Joe Wells. So it's funny because uh, when we were chatting earlier, the way that I originally kind of found your content was through Matt Russell, the CEO Mm. uh, at Colossus. And um, I was in the process of basically starting my own newsletter and kind of contemplating that. And I was finding actually quite a bit of value out of doing that. And then I had asked Matt, we have chats be once or twice a month uh, if he had come across anybody else who was doing something similar. Uh, and so he had recommended I, I follow and check out your Lake Street Journal newsletter, which was really cool. Um, so maybe as a starting point in terms of how you tend to introduce yourself to mm. like new people that you meet, whether it's in a business setting or in like a creator setting, could you provide just a little bit of background about who Joseph Wells is? Yeah, sure. So uh, before I get into that, it's kind of funny that you mentioned Matt because he's been a subscriber to the Lake Street Journal for a while. I'm not sure how he initially found me. And then I found you somehow. I don't know. Maybe you reached out to me or something. And I was reading your website and I was impressed with it. And I shared something in the Lake Street Journal. And then Matt responded to that and was like, oh, cool. You know, Tyler. (laughs) So you found me through him. and, And then I probably found you through him, too. It's kind of funny. Yeah, it all it all comes full circle. That's awesome. Yeah, but um, I guess the way I introduce myself, like professionally, if that's what we're talking about, is as an anti money laundering consultant or investigator. Um, and I've kind of been in the anti money laundering compliance industry for about ten years now, since I graduated college. In a few different capacities, I've worked um, for a consulting company full time, and then I left and went to a bank. 
I was there for a few years and then I actually came back to the consulting company. Hmm. And then I left that to join a startup in a totally different industry that kind of failed after six months, took some time off. And now I'm just in this, in the AML industry as an independent consultant, which I like a lot better than before. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Um, and I guess on the side, you have a handful of like creative passions or outlets, right? Um, I do, yeah. So both like the Lake Street Journal and anything else that you're working on in terms of uh, like rough timeline of, of that, what is, uh, what is the focus and development there? So I, I started writing online, I guess, in 2018. And uh, well, I can give you like kind of the full backstory, or I can just kind of tell you like how I split my time between my professional life and my, my side hustles or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Let's go through the ladder. And I think a handful of follow-up questions on my end will end up circling back on, on the full story. Yeah. Perfect. So um, 40 hours a week, I'm doing the AML thing. And then anytime after that nights, weekends, mornings, whatever, I'm reading books, listening to podcasts, curating my Lake street journal, which is a weekly email that I send on Fridays with kind of just a smattering of what I've found interesting throughout the week. And like really the big purpose of the Lake Street Journal is to, the tagline is borrowed wisdom for a better life. And basically what I'm trying to do is just to give people nuggets to ponder, to think on, to maybe apply to their life in a way that um, they just might view life and their approach to decisions a little bit differently, just to become a little bit more uh, well-rounded. So with each thing that I share, I try to have like some kind of concrete takeaway that you might be able to use, but I always try to have something that will just leave you thinking. I love it. Um, the primary like way in which I get news and article recommendations and book recommendations, all those types of things tend to be more like now through my Twitter feed and through newsletters that I subscribe to. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I've, I've really enjoyed, I've probably been a subscriber now for maybe six, seven months at this point. Um, but some of the stuff you share in there is, uh, is awesome. So I guess two questions on Lake street journal, like one in terms of what motivated you to start that newsletter initially, like what was the the key thing there? And then like related the, the name itself, uh, mm-hmm. what is the significance behind the Lake street journal? Sure. So I started writing online in 2018 and I was publishing pretty consistently for like two years. And then uh, just before 2020, I sat down and wrote a piece I called Visions for the Next Decade. And I kind of just sat down at the table and outlined some of the things that I wanted to do over the next 10 years, because I I felt like uh, 2010 to 2020 were kind of just scattered everywhere. Like I was chasing different things. I didn't really have a central focus. And, you know, part of that is being like a late teenager into my early twenties and starting my career and going through school. And, and just, I think a lot of people at that age are, are, are not super focused, but I, I wanted to focus going forward. And one of my goals um, for that 10 year period was to grow my readership to 50,000 people on my email list. Now, like that's a huge goal. I'm nowhere near that, but I knew to take steps towards that goal. I needed to do something consistently. And I wanted to pick something that I wouldn't flame out on in six months, you know? So I figured a curation newsletter, which is something that I was kind of doing on a monthly basis Mm. would be something that I could do on a weekly basis because I'm consuming all this stuff anyway, and I'm thinking about it and I'm writing about some of it. So I can just put that 
into an email and send it out to people. And if it's high value and I do it every single week for 10 years, like it has to grow. It's going to grow. It's inevitable that it will grow. So um, that's kind of how I started the Lake Street Journal. And then the name, it's kind of stupid. It's not great branding. But um, at that point in my life, I was living on a street in White Plains called Lake Street. And to me, that represented really like the beginning of my knowledge journey, let's call it like beyond college, right? So that's Hmm. When I was living there is when I got interested in listening to podcasts and learning about investing and just making myself a better person. So for me, that point in time uh, represents the beginning of my journey. And a good way for me to kind of memorialize that was naming the newsletter after the street that I lived on. And even in terms of the the timeline, and it's funny because your, your background to some extent is kind of similar to mine in that um, you started your career in the finance industry, although I'd say like in a niche of that. Mm-hmm. So like early on from undergrad and immediately following, what was your like career plans and were you doing anything like creative in terms of writing or producing a newsletter uh, like early on in your career? Yeah. So when I went to college, all I wanted to be was a cop. I don't say that like to disparage cops, but like that, that was my sole focus. Like I just want to be in law enforcement. Right. And you can't enter law enforcement until you're 21. So might as well get a degree. If I'm going to get a degree, I might as well get it in something other than just criminal justice in case being a cop doesn't work out. So I got a degree in economic crime investigation, which was criminal justice, but it focused specifically in fraud and anti-money laundering and white collar crime broadly. Um, and then I did well in those classes and professors recommended me for an internship in New York city with a consulting company. So I went into that thinking like, Oh, cool. I'll do three months here. I'll come back up, take the police tests. I'll become a cop, live back in upstate New York where I grew up. Well, one thing led to another, I got a job offer from the the company where I was interning and inertia just kind of took me down that path. And at a certain point I realized like making a lot more money here than I would be making in law enforcement and I kind of like my life, even though I don't love the job. So I kind of just stayed on that path and I was not doing anything creative and I was probably really just like wasting a ton of time. Um, But around that same time, I I started listening to podcasts and reading books and trying to learn more and just become a, a, a better individual, I guess, just a more effective person. And in consuming all this stuff, I had all these ideas floating around in my head And I felt that the best way to manage that and like actually learn the stuff was to write about it and to share it. Um, So that's when I started writing. Gotcha. That's awesome. And when you first started the Lake Street Journal, the newsletter, Mm -hmm. um, what was the hope or the intention of doing so? Was it just to literally share the best things that you'd been either reading or listening to or consuming, or was there any kind of broader scope and ambition with what you were doing like early on? I think the goal has always been to like make a living as a creator. Um, but knowing that that's maybe kind of a long shot and just like wanting to do something sustainable that's in that direction that will maybe pave a path for me to get there at, at some point. So I think that was like really the, the primary hope and the goal. And I mean, the, the Lake Street Journal has evolved a little bit in the three and a half years that I've been writing it. Now it has a consistent format. So it's five things that I share every week. The first is something that I've created. The next three are things that I've found. And the 
fifth one is a quote. So it's that same format every single week now for probably about two years. Before that, it might have been six things. It might have been three things. It might have been, uh, it, it could have been really anything. But now I've just kind of narrowed in on, on what works for me and what I think people like. As, uh, as somebody who's like highly introverted and uh, also a very curious person in terms of having an outlet to like expose the things that you're learning about or the things that get you excited in a traditional like professional setting can be kind of hard to start that conversation. But it seems like if you have a newsletter and you have you know friends, family, prior colleagues that are kind of tracking along with your learning journey, mm-hmm. that it can be like an incredibly powerful asset. I'm just like curious in terms of how you've seen the Lake Street Journal develop and it be um, a source of whether excitement or uh, or otherwise for you. Have you have you kind of seen that over time as well? Well, what's kind of interesting is I basically try to keep my online life separate from my professional life. Um, not for any particular reason other than just like, I kind of want to keep it separate. So I don't talk about uh, my writing or podcasting or creating at all. Like when I was going to the office, I really didn't talk to anybody about it. I had some friends there who I would tell mm-hmm. about it. Um, you know, and some of them would sign up and whatever, follow along. And then I think it was during COVID somebody found somebody that I worked with, who I wasn't like really friends with, but I knew found my newsletter, just randomly found it and signed up and sent me an email. I was like, Hey, this is so cool that you do this. And I think that guy's actually still on my my email list. So some things like that have happened. You know, a lot of my family is on the list now. So you know, at, at get-togethers, people will like bring up something that I might have shared. And I think it sparks some good conversation sometimes. Um, and then like in terms of it kind of being like a, a, a resume tool, not in the anti-money laundering professional aspect, but like yeah. you know, I did some time at a at a startup and I've done some freelance work for people and it's, it's like really good to say, Hey, I've been doing this for three and a half years, every single Friday. I haven't missed one or here, check out my website. There's over a hundred articles on here. Like you can't fake that, you know, like you can put anything you want on a resume, but this website has 200,000 words on it. Like you're not making that up. Go look at it. If you like it, cool. Let's talk. If you don't, Hey, that's fine too. But like, I still did the work. It's there, you know? Yeah. I'm going to take a slight detour um, from just like the creative topic and just ask you a little bit about the anti-money laundering kind of background. And I guess right now, are you, you're still doing that as a primary professional focus, right? Yeah. Okay. And as somebody who's had experience uh, in finance and like dealt with like compliance, regulatory type of stuff that I often, is just like a huge pain. Yep. Um, like what, what do you do right now? And most of, of what you do is as a, in a consultatory uh, practice, or do you work from alert for a larger, like anti-money laundering related firm? Could you share just a little bit more in terms of what your job involves? Yeah. So I'm, I'm independent. I don't work for a firm. I'm just like, I have one client that I work for right now, basically. And I'm just essentially their employee, but in a, in a contract uh, type relationship. And so what I do and what I've done most of my career in some capacity is transaction monitoring. So every United States bank is required to have an anti-money laundering program. And part of that program is a transaction monitoring system. So every transaction that you conduct at the bank goes through this system and it's a rules-based system. So there are certain rules that if the transaction 
meets uh, the criteria for those rules, it creates what's called an alert. So for example, uh, there might be a high-risk geography alert and the rule would be a transaction over X amount of dollars to a country on this high-risk country list. If that happens, create an alert. So like, mm. let's say that happened for you, right? You send a $50,000 wire from your account at Bank of America to an individual in India. That's going to create an alert. It's going to come to me. I'm going to look at that and say, okay, what um, know your customer information do we have on Tyler? Where does he work? How much money does he make? How long has he lived where he lives? Like any other information that we might have about him. Does he have any connection to India? So I'm going to look at all of our internal information and try to figure that out. Then I'm going to do like kind of my own Google investigative research and see what I can find and, and see like why you might be sending $50,000 to India, who this person is, how you might know them, what the purpose of the transaction is, where did that money come from? Like how, how did you make the $50,000 to send it to India? Um, and basically just going to try to figure out if this is consistent with your profile, if it's something that you should be doing, or if it's something that's anomalous, something that we can't explain. And if we can't explain it, um, yeah, we're going to probably ultimately reach out to you to get more information. But if we're still not satisfied, we're going to file what's called a suspicious activity report. Mm. And that goes to the financial crimes enforcement network, which is under the treasury department. And then that information is kind of like housed in a database and is used by different law enforcement agencies as they're conducting their investigations. Interesting. So I guess when, when you look at the arc of your career, and I guess at this point, it's been like 10 plus years in mm. that industry for you. Is that right? Yeah, it's been about 10 years. So looking back, is that um, that anti-money laundering space, um, are you grateful that you had kind of followed that career path or would you have tried to do anything different? I think about this a lot. And like, I think when you're right out of college, there are kind of two distinct, distinct paths that you can take, maybe three. The first is find a job that pays you well, make as much money as you can, um, be responsible with that money. And then at a certain point when you've made enough, right? Like mm -hmm. go do the thing that you want to do, which probably pays less money, if any money at all. The other path, I think, is find something that you really like, regardless of the money, and just be okay doing this thing that you like to do, even if you don't make a lot of money, right? And then I guess the third would be find something that you like and also pays a lot of money, but that's that's a little bit more rare. So I think yeah. I've taken the path where I do something that I don't necessarily like, but it pays me pretty well. And at some point in the future, before like a traditional retirement age, I'll be able to stop doing what I'm doing and then pursue other interests and not really have to worry about how much money I make from them. In terms of the, let's say the content that you choose to consume and that also, I guess, makes its way into like Lake Street Journal. I know that like Ryan Holiday is one of your favorite authors. Um, I've read a handful of your articles uh, online in terms of like what most interests you, uh, whether that be in like psychology or history or personal development or things like that, do you tend yourself gravitating, gravitating towards uh, a handful of like key topics? Yeah, I would say that history has become increasingly interesting to me just to see the parallels that you can draw between what has happened in the past and, and what is happening today. And then kind of like shape your decisions based on that. Psychology is interesting, really like Morgan Housel's writing. Um, but mostly I'm interested in just gaining as broad a perspective as possible 
from as many different angles as possible with the goal of being able to live a better life. So like getting perspective from old people on what they um, most enjoyed about their life and what they most regret about it. So I can avoid the things that they regret. Right. Mm. And, and, you know, learning from biographies of presidents as to what made good leaders and, you know, reading Robert Caro's books about uh, power and who has power and how power is good and bad. Um, so I, I would say like everything that I do is it's not like a specific uh, topic that I'm interested in, but more of a question, like how can this improve my life? Not necessarily in a tack, uh, like a, not necessarily tactics, but perspective. Mm. Yeah. I mean, on the topic of perspective and specifically like long-term thinking. So I know that on your website, uh, josephcwells.com, you have uh, basically quarterly goals that you set for yourself. And then um, you end up reviewing uh, kind mm. of at the end of the quarter to mm. debrief on where you made progress and you know where you didn't. Uh, what was like the motivation behind starting those quarterly reviews and like how have you found them add add value because one one topic thread that i often find myself coming back to is like there's two philosophies of making progress and one is this like growth without goals which is as long as you are making incremental progress uh, regardless of whether or not you have a specific goal in mind um, when you look at when you look back at all the work that you've done, um, you'll be likely amazed if you're persistent and deliberate with how you're, you know, treating your ambitions or, or whatnot. And then the other perspective is like, if you don't have a schedule and a plan for the things that you hope to accomplish, then at the end of the day, those are just dreams, mm -hmm. right? And so I find myself you know, every so often kind of cycling back between one or the other. Um, so I'm curious, like how you have uh, structured your quarterly goals and how you found value out of them. I think the way I try to look at that is kind of a blend of the two. So I started conducting the, the quarterly reviews after I published that article about my visions for the next decade, where I laid out some kind of high level things that I want to do, like a rough net worth that I want to get to and a number of readers I want to have on my list and like some fitness goals I want to hit, like just putting some targets out there in a general direction that I can work towards. And then the quarterly goals help me break that down a little bit further. And I think that doing it quarterly is helpful because it gives me a target to aim for in the short term, but it's only three months. So if something's not working for me, I can adjust it. Right. And that kind of goes towards what you're talking about, like growth without goals. So I have these short-term goals, but if they're not working, I can just like change them or get rid of them or whatever. So it's not like a prescriptive approach, but I do need some guardrails. Otherwise I'll like start a podcast or try to read 10 books on a topic or like, I don't know, see how many pull-ups I can do. Like <laughs> it's just gonna, like going to bounce all over the place and not yeah. have any direction. And like, you can be persistently working to improve yourself, but if you're doing it in a hundred different areas, you're probably not going to make much progress at anything. Yeah, that's that's completely fair. I guess in terms of like even getting a sneak peek summary of 
um, what tends to go into your quarterly reviews. So I've noticed like some of it is like finance related, right? Like mm -hmm. personal finances. Some of it is like pertaining to um, your newsletters and the growth of subscribers and things like that. Um, is there uh, like a general trajectory or trend those fits into like broader overarching goals that kind of point to the same long-term end goal? Yeah, I think, I think the long-term end goal is just to kind of like steal a line from Morgan Housel is to do whatever I want, whenever I want with whomever I want and not be told by anyone like what I have to do. And how do I get there? It's like, okay, get a certain net worth. So I don't have to work for people I don't want to work for doing things that I don't want to do. Um, reach a certain level of fitness so that, you know, I, if there's no elevator, I'm cool taking the stairs, right? Or like if something bad happens, if the boat sinks in the lake, like I'm pretty confident I can swim a half mile to the shore, that type of thing. Um, building the audience that gives me potentially um, an independent source of income. Um, so I, I think all of those things kind of are pointing in the direction of freedom generally. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen even in the arc of like the past five years for me personally, just the honing in, in terms of importance on optimizing for independence. Yeah. Um, and I, I read Morgan Housel pretty regularly as well. And, um, to me, a lot of really s smart people that could kind of tie themselves down into very high paying jobs that make the decision to, um, kind of optimize for independence, like in mm -hmm. the long term, there are huge benefits towards that, I guess, with you creatively in terms of, um, developing an audience or financial support so that you could be completely independent with how you're allocating your time now. So I know you started a second newsletter uh, called Wonderful Words. Mm -hmm. um, could you speak a little bit about like the decision there to engage in that and uh, what your, I guess, medium to long-term goals are with it? Sure. Yeah. So that, that was kind of an experiment and it's something I've been thinking about for a long time because like you, I read a lot of books and when you're reading, you come across these sentences where you're just like, damn, that is good. Like, I wish I wrote that type of thing. Yeah. And my thinking as I do that is that I've become a halfway decent writer from number one practice, but number two, reading a lot. And just like when you're a kid playing basketball and your coach says, hey, go home and turn on the NBA or turn on March Madness or whatever. You want to watch the people who are really good at what they do. And you want to do that a lot. And what does doing that help you with? It helps you identify like when I need to make that bounce pass instead of the chest pass, right? Like when it's appropriate to hold the ball uh, versus drive up the court, what I do in certain situations and all that is pattern matching. And you pick that up from repetition, from reading in terms of becoming a good writer from reading a lot of good writing or in mm -hmm. terms of being a basketball player from watching a lot of really good basketball players. Now, of course you have to practice too, but if you're just practicing without watching the people who did it really well before you, uh, your learning curve is going to be, uh, you're going to progress much more slowly, I think. So my idea here is that a lot of people want to become better writers, but they may not have time to spend all this time reading. And if you don't have time to spend reading, 
how do you do that pattern matching? You have to only see the best writing, right? Like you have to have somebody else pick it out for you and then explain to you like, this is why it's good. So that's what I do. Every uh, twice a week, I send an email with one of those sentences where it's like, this is really good. And then I explain why I think it's good. I analyze it and I explain kind of like the little literary technique mm-hmm. uh, that the author is using and, and how to apply that to your writing. So that was my idea. I wanted to do that because I thought it would be kind of fun. I thought it would help people. And also I thought it was like, a pretty good niche. And when you want to grow a newsletter, it's difficult to do that if you're not in a niche. And the Lake Street Journal is not, it's very broad Mm. and it's hard to pitch to somebody. Like if I wanted somebody to sign up for the Lake Street Journal, what do I say to them? Uh, It's not like, Hey, sign up for this and become a better investor, sign up for this and become a better writer, sign up for this and, you know, read one story about an entrepreneur every week. It's not that it's something different every week. So if you sign up for it, I think you get a lot of benefit from it, but I can't articulate what that benefit is to make you want to sign up. Whereas with wonderful words, it's pretty easy. Become a better writer in five minutes or less. Read these emails twice a week, apply what I'm telling you, and your writing is going to improve. So number one, it was something I wanted to do. Number two, it's a niche with a a clear value proposition. So I thought it'd be kind of easy to grow. And then in growing that, I thought I would use it as a feeder back to the Lake Street Journal and Mm. kind of vice versa. So the idea was basically to just like bring more people into my little online universe and just, just grow my, uh, my, my, uh, content catalog, I suppose. Gotcha. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's something that I, I guess is what I'm appreciative of in terms of like, whether it's this podcast or my newsletter being right now, more so of a side creative passion project uh, type thing is that I, I don't necessarily need to confine myself uh, to a niche and just yet if in terms of having like pressure to grow, see it pretty clearly. Like that's, I think the number one piece of like feedback that I have heard in terms of a creators trying to build an audience quickly is that if you don't find a niche, it's uh, pretty hard to, to scale quickly. Um, in terms of what has been the most challenging or I guess your expectations, you, you said like, it's something that you had been considering and rethinking about, mm-hmm. um, has your approach or the strategy changed at all based on the last, I don't know how long you've been doing it for a couple months at this point, um, yeah. changed. I'm six months in now. And I told myself when I started, if you don't have 500 subscribers by the end of month six, it's cool to pull the plug, right? Like I gave myself permission to do that. Have like, I think 440 subscribers. And most of those people I added in the first three months, Mm -hmm. I just had a lot more time to focus on it in the first three months. Um, My first child was born in February. So She's almost five months old now and she's like taking up a lot of my time, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I just don't have as much time mainly to promote that newsletter. So the writing is fine. Like I, I can get out two every week, but as you've probably seen, the writing isn't really uh, the difficult part in terms mm. of growing. It's promoting it. And like, you have to be out there networking with people. You have to be doing partnerships. You have to be on social media. You have to be doing things to grow or you're just not going to grow. Yeah. So in the first three months, I was able to do a few things like uh, I got shout outs from friends with bigger newsletters. 
I did a little bit of um, paid advertising, which helped a lot, but like it's a side project. So I don't want to spend a lot of money on it. I just wanted right. to supercharge it. So that worked well. Uh, and then I was on social media a lot, which I absolutely hate, but <laughs> it's kind of like a, a necessary evil for this. So yeah. um, I gave myself permission to cut it off at this point if I didn't hit 500 and I haven't hit 500, but I'm actually kind of liking it. And I think it's making me a better writer. And then it's, it's another one of those things like the Lake street journal where it's like something to put on my resume. Right. Mm. I've written 50 of these. Now, if you go back and read through them, most of them are pretty good. You know, like they've taken some time to write. They're thoughtful. If somebody wants to learn to be a better writer, they can go in and, and read through all of them. And I have this catalog. So I think I'm going to keep going for now, even though it's not uh, kind of panning out the way I hoped it would in terms of feeding back into my Lake Street Journal audience. But I think it serves some other purposes that are uh, not as quantifiable, but also like pretty valuable. And even on this approach to becoming a better writer, um, in terms of, I guess, the approach that you take, whether it's like chunking out like specific time slots in your calendar to write um, or the process of generating new ideas, um, what has that evolved over time or what is, what is your general approach to writing? Well, with wonderful words, it's easy to batch it because as I'm reading, I capture these things that I want to share and then I just have a big list of them and then say on Saturday morning, I'll sit down go to that list, pick out the ones I want to write about and just write it. Hmm. When I'm writing articles for my website, it's a little bit different. Cause like you said, you have to have an idea. It's I'm not writing about the same thing every time. So I don't really have a shortage of ideas. What I have is a shortage of time to write about those ideas. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Did you listen to the, the making media podcast with Morgan Housel recently? I did. Yeah. So that one was really fantastic. good. And what I, what I, liked about that was his process, which is really not much of a process at all, but it's kind of similar to what I do. Like he reads a bunch of stuff. He goes for walks. He thinks he talks to people and he gets ideas. And when he gets an idea, he sits down and writes an article about it. That's basically what I do and what I've done for the last four or five years now. Um, but it's not my full-time job. So I mm -hmm. don't create as much as he does. Maybe that's kind of a cop-out answer. I would say what I'm trying to move towards is more of a note card system like Ryan holiday and Billy mm -hmm. Oppenheimer use. Yep. Um, and that works really well. Like I've written some good articles with that. And, and the basic idea there is like, as you're reading a book, you underline stuff, you get to the end of the book, then you set aside, give it some time. You come back, you look at your highlights and the ones that you still think are pretty cool. You transfer that to a note card. And it's not just like, you know, rote copying of what's in the book. You're trying to turn that into an independent piece that you could just plug into an article. So you like give it a title, you copy maybe part of the quote and you turn it into a, like you make it into an anecdote basically. Mm. And then I've got this, you know, box of these note cards that I can go back through and piece together into articles or, or help me generate ideas for articles or whatever. Um, this is a, it, it works well. It's a good process, but it, again, it's time consuming. So like it takes time to sit down and go through those books and write the cards and I just haven't been good about it. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild because even with my personal writing, like especially early on when I started, I found it almost impossible to generate new ideas. Mm. Uh, but then I just made it a habit that whenever I had an interesting idea come up or 
um, some new thought that occurred to me that just hadn't previously of just taking a note in uh, like my notes app. And then at the end of the week, I'd have, you know, a lot to, to work through. So just the fact that having a process set up um, to, to share uh, is like incredibly effective. But I I think the, the harder part is like, sometimes I'll have a thought, I'll jot it down in my notes app. And then I'll think that I have an essay out of it and I'll, I'll start to write it. And then like nothing is coming out. Like either the original thought just didn't make sense. And I guess that's like part of the beauty of writing is that it is a check on reality of like what you think, you know, versus what you actually know. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one of the personal values that I found out of creating a system. So th- what you say about like kind of writing down your good ideas, that's actually something I learned from David Perel in his rite of passage course. That's like mm-hmm. one of the first things he has people do. I don't know if he still does it that way, but when I took his course, it was like you create whatever it is, your notes app or Evernote or whatever you, a piece of paper, whatever you want to use, you just have this commonplace thing where like anytime an idea pops into your head, you just write it down and then you can come back to it later. And like you said, a lot of times you'll come back to it and be like, this is fucking stupid. Like, what was I thinking? <laughs> But then occasionally, like you get a nugget of gold in there, right? Yep. And even if you sit down and start writing that essay and you're like, yeah, this is shit. What I do is like, I just keep it as a Google Doc. And then I might come back and pull a paragraph out of it that was actually good, right? Like maybe the whole idea wasn't good, but maybe I can use a piece of that somewhere else. And I've got, I don't know, a half a dozen articles that are almost fully written, probably in my Google Docs, where I'm just like, this just doesn't make the cut for me to publish, but there's some good stuff in here. Yeah. One of, one of the things that I find a lot of value out of writing um, is the aspect of like, you're almost wrestling with your own mind. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I saw on your website was like one of your favorite books that you'd read uh, or potentially the most like influential was um, was it the comfort crisis by oh, yeah. uh, Easterly? I actually haven't read that book yet, but I've been reading um Jonathan Haidt's The Coddling of the American Mind recently. Mm -hmm. And I'm Mm -hmm. curious just in terms of uh, you seem to have written about and thought quite a bit about um, just the importance of engaging with challenge and adversity Mm -hmm. uh, with how you like either construct your own environment uh, and how you allocate your time. And I guess like also you're now a parent. And so I imagine that, you know, in terms of your parenting style and things like that, that'll have an influence on the decisions you make. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about uh, that whole thread of comfort versus discomfort and the value in, uh, in adversity? Yeah. So the comfort crisis by Michael Easter, one of the best books I've ever read, actually it's up there on my top shelf. And those books that are sitting the other way up there are the ones that have had the most impact on me. Nice. You probably can't see it on the screen, but um So yeah, I I think the central idea in that book is that from a historical perspective, humans have had to deal with discomfort and adversity for 99% of our existence, right? So we were living out in the elements, hunting our food, walking hundreds of miles, carrying everything we owned. Like we didn't have strollers to push our kids. People were dying of disease. Like life was just hard. And that was part of living. And you had to overcome this adversity. You had to work hard. You had to, um, if you're going to gorge yourself on a meal, you had to either go out and pick those berries or you had to chase down the wildebeest and kill it with a spear, right? Like you, you're, you're not just plopping down on the couch and eating a box of donuts. Like that reward needs to be preceded by effort. 
And so I think humans have evolved to reflect that, right? Mm. But but now almost any reward that we want can be obtained without much effort, right? Like I can order a pizza on my phone right here and have it delivered before this conversation is over. Mm. And like, I don't even have to put pants on if I don't want to. <laughs> I'm wearing yep. pants by the way, but <laughs> um, so I, I think the idea of the book, and he talks about a lot of different things like People don't have to be bored anymore. People don't have to think about death anymore. Mm. So many things that people don't have to, people don't sit in silence ever. Um, so he goes through all these different examples. And, and one of the solutions he offers is this Japanese concept called the Masagi. And this is like, it's basically like a rite of passage. Mm. And it's an event that you partake in that has two requirements. One, and I'm paraphrasing, but these are basically his words. It has to be really fucking hard. And number two, you can't die. So let's start with number one, really, really hard. He defines that as you have about a 50% chance of succeeding, of completing this challenge. Hmm. Now, when you think about like most of the things we do in daily life, we have a much higher chance of succeeding than that, right? Right. Um, so you have to pick something where there's a, a good chance that you're going to fail. And by virtue of that, it makes it really hard, right? Because like, if there's a good chance you're going to fail, you need to work really hard to succeed. And the second thing is like, don't die. Like that was just kind of like tongue in cheek, like don't do stupid things basically. So yep. my wife and I came up with a challenge to do our own little Masagi. And we decided that we were going to run a mile and a half every hour for 24 hours. So 36 miles in 24 hours, but spread over 24 hours. So basically mm. you can't really sleep. Um, and so we did that like a year and a half ago. And I thought I can definitely run a mile and a half every hour for 24 hours. Like my body is capable of doing that, but there might be some unforeseen things that would drop my success rate down to potentially 50%, like mm. an injury or um, mo mostly an injury, right? Like dehydration or a pulled muscle or, or whatever. So we decided to do the challenge. Started out at like seven in the morning by three in the afternoon. We're like, wow, this really sucks. This is hard by 7 PM. I'm thinking, but not saying out loud. I don't think I'm going to be able to finish this, you know, by midnight, I'm hobbling down the steps to the first floor to limp laps around our apartment complex. And then by sunrise the next morning, we're doing the last one. And like my wife and I did everyone together all through the night and finished our 36 miles. And we were like, wow, like that shit was hard, but we fucking did it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I hadn't, I hadn't ever heard of that Japanese concept Misagi before. Um, but it sounds like, there's, there's like this dichotomy that I often think about uh, in terms of like the modern age that we live in. And to me, it's like, this is like an optimal age for Misagi in the sense that like any obstacle that you want to engage in um, or any feat that you want to try and chase, like there are very little barriers nowadays to doing that, right? Whether it's like doing something athletic, like you had said, like you literally manufactured that obstacle out of nothing yeah. and you got a sense of like deep reward or accomplishment from it. Um, and it's kind of wild, like 
the fact that I can pick up a microphone and you know record a podcast conversation with you, um, like all of these things, uh, permissionless and uh, and free, and yet like this day and age, very few people uh, end up engaging with those things. Um, so yeah. it's just something that I think you know a lot about. Yeah. So I also didn't like probably bring this home properly, but you asked about you know, adversity, I guess, and I I think that that thing that my wife and I did was like totally made up. Didn't really matter. Could have quit at any time. There would have been no implications of that, but in doing something that's really hard and takes that amount of time, I think you learn like little ways to trick your mind into continuing, right? Like into taking that next step when you're like, my knee feels like it's about to break in half and like, I'm tired, I'm hungry. Like everything hurts. I just don't want to be here. And you just tell yourself like, just one more step. There's one more step. And you do that mm. over and over and over again. And in finishing that and doing it, you realize like, okay, these things that are really hard, I can just break them down into little pieces. And yeah, the little pieces suck, but a little piece doesn't last that long. If I look mm -hmm. at a little piece instead of a 24 hour challenge, like, yeah, I can do that every time. And that's important because you can translate it into the, the events in your life over which you don't have control. Like, bad things are going to happen to you. You can't really plan for them. You don't know when they're going to happen. You don't know what they're going to be. But if you cultivate this talent of knowing how to push through difficult things, I think it's super, super important for uh, those events that inevitably arise in your life. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, it's interesting because it's also pulls on this other thread of like making the most of your time, right? Where Nowadays, there is uh, quite a more uh, a bit of more like leisure that's been unlocked in terms of people's like work life balance and how they choose to allocate their time. Um, I was reading it was a our article on your website. I think it was about how you had gotten like robbed at gunpoint or something mm. like that, right? Yeah. And I've had a handful of thankfully very few experiences where I've had like a, a near death experience, right? Mm. But I've always had. Um, like most people instances where I've gotten like severely injured or severely ill. And the fact that like, as you approach death or be reminded of it, like your appreciation in terms of the, the short time that you have on this earth is like a huge motivator in terms of accomplishing things, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like, I think a lot of the reading in terms of like Ryan holiday and, uh, and related authors kind of touch on similar like stoic related topics. Uh, but in terms of like how you think about death and, uh, and the nearness of it and experiences like that, um, could you say a little bit on, on that topic? Yeah, I think I probably think about this a lot more than most people to the point where like my sister-in-law said to me one time, like, like, why do you think about this so much? Not, not like in a judgmental way. Like she was actually like curious about it. And yeah. I think that, like you said, you have maybe not a near-death experience, but you get really sick or you almost get hit by a car or like me, you get robbed at gunpoint and you realize like, wow, like life really could be over at any time. But then pretty quickly, you get back to just operating how you operate every day. And mm -hmm. like, you forget that again really quick. And if you forget it, you don't appreciate the things in your life as much, I don't think. Like even something as simple as like, drinking this stupid seltzer like tastes good i like it it's enjoyable yeah i could just chug it down and be like yeah there's a seltzer great or i can be like eh, 
like the way the bubbles feel on my tongue. Like mm-hmm. this is kind of a nice flavor. Same thing like sipping my coffee or going for a walk with my wife or like holding my daughter above my head. Any of that stuff, it's um, I think you appreciate it more and it's more precious when you realize like, oh, this could be the last time. Right. And you don't have to do it in a morbid way. It's just um, just like kind of reminding yourself, I should be present for this and I should enjoy it. And I think um, you get a lot more out of your life when you treat it that way. So the way I kind of try to remind myself of this is I periodically read books like um, When Breath Becomes Air. I don't know if you've read this. I've heard uh, it recommended multiple times, but I haven't read it now. It's really good. It's about this um, doctor who gets terminal cancer and, and ends up dying from it. So it's kind of an interesting like meditation on death from various perspectives um, experienced by the same person. So that's, mm. that's kind of cool. Um, there are some other really good books like The Last Lecture, um, Not Fade Away by Peter Barton. That one's really good. There's like a handful of books like this that you can just like read one of them a year, right? And it just kind of reminds you of that. Or you can read some of Ryan Holiday's work on the idea of memento mori, and it just reminds you of that. And I, I think it's, again, it's like not dwelling on the morbidity of death, but just reminding yourself of your mortality and saying like, yeah, I really like it here. Like, this is cool. Like, I'm enjoying reading this book. I like going for this run. Like, I appreciate the stuff that I have, that type mm-hmm. of thing. It sounds like, um, so I'm reading um, The Calling of the American Mind right now. And in the book, uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, he talks about like this idea of concept creep, right? Like there's a terminology or some concept, whether it's like depression or um, some t- sort of like mental disorder. And over time, it begun the, the whole concept or the notion of what depression means, you know, evolves and it slips mm-hmm. and it slips and it slips until it becomes something very different than what it did, you know, two, three decades, decades ago. And this idea of like things that creep and change is like almost like universal in many different aspects of life. Like I think about like lifestyle creep in terms of personal finances and mm-hmm. the fact that like you begin to accumulate these financial obligations and the next thing you know, five, 10 years later, like you're spending a massive amount more money than you were when you first started. And uh, it seems like it's a similar thing with almost this creep about thinking about your life in terms of if you just kind of move with the status quo and kind of let society kind of funnel you in some direction, um, like over time, your life can kind of like flash before your eyes if you're not like paying close attention on, on a regular basis. Um, yeah. So it's, it's something that I think a lot about as well. And the thread that's related to it is this whole idea of like taking action, because mm-hmm. I think one of the things a lot of very smart people, in my opinion, um, that don't get as much out of their life as they probably could or should. The the thing that holds them back often is like taking action in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like knowledge without action is is really useless. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm I'm curious in terms of how taking action, whether it's like starting a newsletter. Uh, your original newsletter, Lake Street Journal, or uh, the second newsletter, uh, or with how you like interact, you know, with personal relationships. I know you started a podcast before. Um, could you talk a little bit about just like how you have thought about like taking action in in your own life? Yeah. So yesterday, actually, I was listening to a podcast with Sam Parr and Nick Bear, and they've both started companies. Sam sold his for 
multiple millions and tens of millions. And he's, uh, he's got a really good podcast and in his professional life, he spent a lot of time around people who were super successful, like made hundreds of millions of dollars, billionaires, whatever, like founders of companies, just really successful people. And his observation in spending time with all these people is that two things, importantly, one is that they have the same insecurities and doubts as we do. And number two, he says, most of them are like, not much smarter than the average person. He's like, I'm, I'm, he, he says, I'm a fairly intelligent person, but like nothing spectacular. And he goes, I'm in the same ballpark as most of these people. <laughs> and so like the takeaway from that was we're not really that much different than people who accomplish great things. The primary difference is that those people take action hmm. and they're able to take action because they're not afraid to fail. So I, I think a useful uh, mental model for not being afraid to fail is something that Tim Ferriss calls fear setting. And that's where you take something that you're thinking about doing. So I'll just use the example of quitting my consulting job to go work for this startup. And when I left that consulting job, I think I was making like $140,000 and the salary at the startup was $60,000. Right. And that right there would like stop most people. But this fear setting exercise you take what you want to do and you say like, what is the absolute worst case scenario here? So I take the job, I make that amount of money. I know I can live on that amount of money. Um, maybe the company folds in six months. What happens then? I just go back and work in the industry I was in before, right? Like I've got enough savings to float me for a few months. Like it's not that big of a deal. And so I kind of went through that exercise and decided to take uh, that position with the startup. And what happened? It folded in six months. What did I do? Went back to the industry that I was in. Like, <laughs> it was like, I'm right back where I started. It's not yeah. that big of a deal. So I think when you frame uh, decisions you want to make and like risks you want to take in terms mm -hmm. of what's the worst thing that could happen if I do this, when you start asking yourself that, you realize that most of the time it's like, it's not that bad. And like, I can totally recover from this. But what's the upside? It's like, enormous, potentially yeah. huge. So I think if you just look at things that way, um, and, th and that's what I've done with a lot of the decisions I've made, like I've done some real estate investing. I started my own startup, which was a total failure. Um, you know, I took that startup job. Um, I've, I've done a bunch of stuff like that and there's really never been any bad outcomes. Yeah. It's a great lesson. And I think it's, um, it's one that I've seen firsthand because when I was, um, at Stanford as an undergrad, one of the things that I noticed pretty quickly was that, um, to some extent I like felt bad for some of my peers and colleagues because there was so much external pressure that they put upon themselves to some extent, whether it was from other peers or their parents that like graduating from, from college, like the only options that they gave themselves were, I would say fairly cookie cutter options, like mm -hmm. investment banking, consulting, um, you know, work for work in a tech role at some big tech company. And they basically had no leeway that they were giving themselves to take risks. And, uh, and, and I think that for a lot of the people that are able to make it big in, in some respects, uh, or even just have like an independent lifestyle, it's because they have given themselves the runway or the leeway to take some, some serious, serious risks. Uh, so it's something that I'm still learning right now. Um, but I, I think it's a great point. Um, I think the other thing is like, 
I also heard this recently on a podcast. I don't remember who said it, but it was basically um, don't chase prestige. Like don't chase a title just for the sake of having it. Like if you want to be a managing director at a bank, cool, go do that. But don't do it just so you can tell people you're a managing director at a bank. Like nobody gives a shit really. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. So I want to be respectful of, of your time here. And I know that um, basically the origins of the, this podcast and part of the name um, Tyler's idea exchange is the idea that like when we are reading books or listening to podcasts or engaging in conversation, uh, a lot of it is acquiring and exposing yourself to newer, better ideas, and then shedding off like old ideas that are not serving your ambitions and goals um, or that are not a good reflection of reality. And so yes, the, the closing question that I'll ask is, in your own life, in terms of what you've changed your mind most about that has like most changed the way that you interact and engage in the world, uh, is there a specific thing that comes to mind uh, on that? So this is an idea I've been thinking about for a while. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to perfectly, like clearly articulate it, but I'm going to try. So I think people find purpose from feeling competent at something. But I think that a lot of people never really gain much competence at anything. Um, And so to feel that feeling of purpose, they exude undeserved confidence in whatever it is that they feel that they want to be competent in. Maybe they know a little bit about it, right? Hmm. And so they act really confident. And I think in doing that, it prevents them from actually like learning more, whether it's in a conversation, like if you exude extreme confidence about something, the person that you're talking to might get the impression that you know much more than they do about the topic. So they're not going to share what they actually know about the topic. And mm-hmm. that's going to prevent you from learn potentially learning something new. Um, Similarly, if you exude extreme confidence about something, you're not going to go searching for new ideas about it. So again, like you don't learn more and you don't produce competence in a topic. Morgan Housel also has a, a good related piece on this called degrees of confidence. And it's basically like these 14 different levels. And at the bottom, it's like, you don't know anything about anything. So you have no confidence at the top, you're like a neurosurgeon. You have extreme competence in one field. So you're very confident in that field. And you kind of extrapolate that into having confidence in other fields where you actually have no expertise. Hmm. So like, because you're really good at neurosurgery, you just assume, oh yeah, I'm probably a really good investor too. And you have extreme confidence in your investing ability. And then you lose a bunch of money because you actually don't know anything about investing. So I think, and and this wasn't like a specific moment for me when I realized this, it's kind of been an evolution. So I think what I try to do and how I try to view the world a little bit differently is like to borrow a line from Ted Lasso is to be curious, not judgmental, like just try to be more curious about things and try to see my blind spots. And I think the more you learn, the more you realize that you have a lot of blind spots because like the more knowledge you gain, the more areas you can see that you don't know anything about. Um, So I think that's how my worldview has changed is like, just try to be more humble 
try to learn more from other people and like build your confidence in a way that is warranted. Don't build false confidence. There's uh there's actually two ideas, like specific examples that come to mind uh, in terms of like what you just shared. One of them is the above average effect in psychology of how when you pull people in terms of, you know, rate your driving skills on a scale of one to 10 and you pull the average and it's something like seven, eight, you know, some, some relatively high score where obviously mm. statistically that's impossible. Yeah. Everybody um, can't be above average, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and the second thing that it brings up is like, um, I've listened to a handful of like Derek Sivers, uh, podcasts before and like one tactic or approach that he tries to use that he's found very helpful is he always enters a new project, a new field of study with the expectation that he is in the bottom 10th percentile. Mm. Right. And when he goes into it, basically with the ground level assumption that there's a lot more to learn, it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy and that he is forced to ask more detailed questions uh, or try harder. Whereas like you said, if he would have assumed he's in the top one percentile, which he very well might be, mm -hmm. then the whole way in which he engages with uh, a new project or field uh, is very different and less curious and less humble. Um, so I think it's a, it's a great point that I often uh, think about in life as well. I think it's also kind of like a, a chicken and egg problem because you need to have some level of humility and a tamed ego in order to approach problems and situations in that way that Derek Sivers explained. Um, but if you have that humility and that small ego, you probably don't need to do it as much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. The, the flip side is that uh, on, on people who are very bright and who do know that they're at the top of their field, when they do develop an ego, it ends up like overflowing into other aspects of their life, right? Mm. Maybe not just the industry that they're in. Um, and I, I see people on Twitter all the time that, you know, uh, they claim to be experts in the field and they very well might be, uh, but then that tends to, <laughs> to cloud their judgment in other aspects of life. So, yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Joe, thanks so much for doing this, this podcast. Uh, has yeah, been you, awesome Tyler. to get to know you and I've enjoyed reading uh, your newsletter uh, over the course of the last six plus months since I've been subscribed. And I look forward to continuing the discussion uh, offline and following along with the progress of your newsletter. Well, thanks, man. I uh, appreciate you having me on and promoting me. And this was a fun conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange podcast. For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, colleagues, and audience members where I share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was from books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, or conversations that I've had. So feel free to subscribe to that on my homepage. Until next time.